Let us hear God's word. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we uh, begin here today, um, I decided that I would look up uh, an atheist and read to you something that he says. And this is the first thing I found. It's from a man named Sam Harris, a best-selling atheist author on the value of mockery and ridicule against those who believe in God. He says this, There's only so much that we can do, because some people will stick by their superstitions even in light of opposing evidence or in light of lack of supporting evidence. It's irrational. It always has been, and I suspect it always will be. That's not to say that we shouldn't continue to try to reject these irrational beliefs and dispel them as well as we can. It's only to say that it might not be as effective with some people as it will be for others. Tons of people are entirely too rooted in their superstitions to even acknowledge they might be wrong. Now, I found some others that were a bit more um, direct, you might say, and not so kind. (laughs) At least he was somewhat uh, respectful. But with this in mind, are we just believing in superstitious things? Are we rejecting evidence? Is it irrational to believe in God? Well, as we come to this section, Paul says emphatically, no, it's the exact opposite. So, last time, We began this first major section here in Romans. It starts here in verse 18 and takes us through chapter 4. And there are three main parts to it. From 118 to 320, he tells us that we're all sinners. And then in chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, he addresses the gospel message. In chapter 4, he continues that thought and focuses especially on faith in the Old Testament. Then... This section here, this first part, has three parts to it. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul is addressing how we all suppress the truth. Gentiles in particular is his focus. Then in chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about the moral man and how none of us live up to our standards, including the Jews. And then he culminates it in chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, by quoting the Old Testament in several places, saying that we are all sinners and are worthy of judgment. And so last time I began with this topic of the revelation of God's wrath from heaven. Many people reject the idea that God is wrathful, including in the church. Yet the Bible is clear. God hates sin, and he must punish it. He can't let it go. God does become angry. His face becomes red, his nostrils flare, but he is never out of control, 
And he is never doing it for selfish or petty reasons, like we do when we become angry. God's wrath is a personal response to our sin, to my sin. Now, this revelation obviously takes place in Scripture, in hundreds of places, including here. But God's wrath is also revealed to us in what we call general revelation, in the things that God has made, in his providence, and in our consciences. And this is revealed to everyone. There are no exceptions. And so God's wrath is shown in his creation by storms and earthquakes, decay and death, famine and drought, as well as floods and hurricanes. God's wrath is shown in history and providence by wars and hardships when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. God's wrath is also shown in our consciences when we are confused about what is right and what is wrong. And in our culture, when we are told that it's good to mutilate and murder children, but it's wrong to punish the minority criminal, Or when we go to church and we are told it's good and even okay to work on Sunday, but it's bad for us to emphasize the means of grace rather than programs, it's easy for us to be confused. But these wrong ideas are part of God's wrath revealed to us to confuse our sense of morality. This wrath is against all who sin. And that, of course, means all of us. So we come here to verse 18, and the last part of it that I did not address last week, or a few weeks ago, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, he says. All right, now, first of all, the word suppress. It's pretty straightforward in what it means. To suppress means to hold it down, to press it down. Hey, uh, I, I was reminded of, of when my mother was baking bread, and certainly Nalene has done it uh, uh, since we've been married. But when you're kneading dough, you press it down and it pops up again. Okay? The yeast causes it to rise. Or, I've used this analogy before, when you're swimming in the water and you try to hold something down that floats, it's pretty difficult. Okay? Eventually it pops up again. Maybe we can hold it down for a little bit, Maybe we can ignore the truth for a little bit, but not for long. And sinners, Paul says, are suppressing the truth about God. You might say sweeping truth under the rug, ignoring the elephant in the room. All right, so what truth then are we suppressing? Well, if you look at verses 19 and 20, Paul's going to tell us what truth we are suppressing. So I'll return to the details, but the main point is we are suppressing the truth that God exists and suppressing the truth about who God is, his character, his attributes. And we're doing it, obviously, in unrighteousness. We are breaking God's law. So as we've talked about last time, we had the word unrighteousness earlier in the verse. We talked about righteousness in verse 17. Remember, this has to do with law. And so the law simply is, we are to believe in the God of the Bible. We are to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we refuse to do so, we are breaking the law. We are not in a right relationship to God's law. 
Now, since everyone is a sinner, everyone suppresses the truth about God. This is not just something Gentiles do. This is not just something an atheist does. But everyone, everywhere throughout history, and it began with Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, they were suppressing the truth about God. Then they tried to cover their sin, and they hid from God. Right? They're suppressing the truth about God when they are sinning. And every sinner does the same thing. And so, again, for those who say this section has to do with Gentiles, okay, there's truth to that, but let's not press that too much. We all suppress the truth. And so, some examples. When somebody speaks about Mother Nature, they are suppressing the truth about God and that he controls the weather. When somebody speaks of the Big Bang and macroevolution and that everything just happened and everything has evolved from some simple cell, they are suppressing the truth that God made all things personally. When someone claims that there is luck or chance, when someone wears their rally cap or their lucky socks, they are suppressing the truth that God controls everything. When somebody believes in another God, here just the other day I read another article about the baseball gods and so forth, right? When people believe in these gods, even if they just use it flippantly, they are suppressing the truth that the God of the Bible is the only true and living God. Now notice what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that everyone knows that there's some greater power, that there's some supreme being or a prime mover. We, we know that some kind of power or force or God exists, we just don't know anything about him. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that everyone knows the God of the Bible is the true God. Even if they've never read the Bible, even if they don't know God by his true name, they still know that the true God exists and they know certain things about him. And so this is the reason why God is upset with everyone for suppressing the truth. So notice verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. God has made it plain. We don't have to go to seminary. We don't have to become a scientist. We don't have to do any of these things to understand this. This is plain as day. A small child knows that God exists and things about him. The most learned scholar understands these things. This is not primitive thought. This is not a childlike fairy tale like children believing in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy. This is as plain as day, as clear as the nose is on the front of our face. So whether you're a church member or a member of a secluded tribe that has never met anyone other than their tribal members, whether you are a secular citizen of the world or a citizen of heaven through Jesus Christ, everyone knows that God exists and things about him. There are no exceptions. 
Every single person who has ever lived, who lives now and ever will live, knows that the God of Israel is the only true God. Again, they may not know him by name, but they know that he is the true God. God made this truth of his existence manifest, is how the New King James says it. Your translation may have another word there, might say evident or clear or something like that. God has revealed himself to everyone in general, and again, it's his Plain as day. Now, you may recall last time, again, it was a few weeks ago now, uh, but I spent a little time talking about special revelation and general revelation, and that is to help prepare us for what we're seeing here in this section and even what I'm saying now. General revelation is made up of three things. God reveals himself to everyone in general through what he has made. That's what Paul's emphasizing here. But also through our consciences. We see that in chapter 2, verse 15, the law written on our hearts. We see that in God's providence. We saw that in Acts 14, and even here we'll see in verses 24 and following. God has shown to everyone that he exists. And so when we suppress that truth, he's upset. And he punishes us accordingly. And the way God has made it known... Is not by having us climb up some great mountain and find this special book up there. All you have to do is look around us. But Paul goes a step farther. Do we know that God exists, but not anything specific about him? Well, in verse 20, he makes that clear. In verse 20... For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. From the very beginning, God revealed himself, not just by speaking to Adam and Eve, not just by talking to Adam, giving him the covenant in chapter 2, not just by placing him in the garden and so forth, but just from Adam looking around things that God made. God made himself known to Adam and Eve from the beginning. All we have to do is look at those things and it becomes clear. So think of an artist or a composer. Think of a builder. When you look at the things that they have done, we learn something about them, right? So if you were to listen to one of Nathaniel's compositions, you will learn something about Nathaniel. If you were to go to my treehouse that I'm working on, and now after a few years, I'm almost done with doing the inside. (laughs) But anyway, you'll learn something about me when you look at that. If you read someone's book or poem or whatever, like Kathy's poems, you learn something about Kathy. Well, in the same way, when you look at a tree, either a specific tree or a whole bunch of trees, when you look at the varieties of trees, you learn something about God. When you look at yourself in the mirror, or you look at a crowd of people, when you look at something minuscule under a microscope, or the heavenly bodies through a telescope, when you go to the zoo, or take a walk in the woods and see and hear all the different birds, all of these, plus many other things, reveal us reveal to us something about God and his character. Not merely that he exists, but things about who he is. 
And so even though God is invisible, as Paul says, his handiwork makes him visible in this way. Now, we also need to add another thought here that certainly Paul would agree with, and that is God made us with the ability to understand what we're seeing. It's not just that the revelation is clear, but our five senses, our souls, have the ability to understand what we are seeing. Now, they've been corrupted. They've been affected by sin. Even the revelation has been affected by sin. But the message is clear as a bell. And we can understand it. Now notice that Paul emphasizes two attributes in particular. He says, first, his eternal power, and secondly, his Godhead. And so first of all, then, the eternal power of God is seen clearly in what God has made. Okay? We drove up out Washington a, little, uh, a couple weeks ago. Our plan when we take Nathaniel is to drive up Pikes Peak. I mean... How can you argue? I mean, look at God's power. Hey, look at these things. We went to see the ocean and so forth. I mean, look at God's power. It's just truly amazing. Hey, we know deep down that God has always existed. The universe, the earth, we have a beginning. This is plain and obvious and evident to everyone. This is not a leap in the dark. This Sam Harris has it all backwards. This isn't blind faith. This isn't irrational. It's outwardly and objectively clear. There's no need to prove that God exists to anyone. All we need to prove is that people are denying the things they know. We don't need to find facts. We don't need to go through logical argumentation to prove this. Everybody knows. Now, those things can be beneficial to help people see how they're denying the truth, but the truth is evident. Like grass is green, which is obvious. And so everyone is constantly surrounded by indisputable evidence that God is eternal and rules over all things. Even the blind and deaf know this, who have some of their senses that don't work. Even those with Down syndrome and other mental challenges, they know these things. The most brilliant person, maybe even who denies it, they know. The average person knows. And God made us all with the ability to perceive these truths. Okay? And so we know, Paul says, first of all, not merely that God exists, but we know that he is eternal. We know that he has power over all things. Again, all you have to do is look out the window. Now, secondly, Paul says that we know about God's Godhead, is how the New King James says it. Now, your translation may have something else or a footnote or whatever. Um, uh, some may have the term divine nature. Some of your translations may use the term deity. Uh, one commentator said it this way. Paul's referring to the totality of that which God is. Or to put it more simply, all of his attributes. Paul is abundantly clear here. It's not just that we know God exists, but we know all kinds of things about God when we look at what he has made. When we look outside, or when we look at how our body works, 
When we watch a seed become a plant or a tree, or we watch the birth of a child or an animal, we know that God is filled with knowledge and wisdom. It's truly amazing, isn't it? When we observe the created order, we see its beauty, we see its order, and we see that God hasn't made bizarre structures like some postmodern artist would do. We see that God is good. He's not creating chaos. Chaos is because of sin. Because of sin, that's God's wrath. When we do see chaos around us, that's because of God's wrath. But in and of itself, no, God is a God of good things. He provides for us. The just and the unjust receive rain and food. God is good. We don't need the Bible to know that. We also see that God is just. There is right and wrong. Everyone inherently knows that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. Now, they may suppress that. They may deny that. They may try to explain it away. But everyone knows deep down that there is right and wrong. Even when we see symbiotic relations in nature, we see a form of justice there. Because good comes of it and things work together. Um, When we see bad things happen, this is an indication of God's wrath. We know that there is something better. There's something different. There is something just there. Even justice in terms of condemnation. And so again, we don't need the Bible to tell us this. Now thankfully we have it, so we understand it more clearly, of course. But we can learn these things just by looking at what God has made. Now, I could spill into some philosophical discussions here. Let me just mention a couple briefly. Philosophers talk about the one and the many. They often ask it in this way. Do you step in the same river twice? So if we were to go to Wolf Creek and step into the river and go fishing the one day and come back the next day, is it the same river or is it a different one? Well, on the one hand, it's totally different. All the water is different, isn't it? Even five minutes in between is totally different water, right? And yet it's the same one. How does that work? And all these philosophers raggle over it. Uh, Plato, of course, talks about the idea of a tree. But we have many varieties of trees. We have the idea of water. But many ways we see water, like lakes and rivers and rain and fog and ice, the ocean as well as one little droplet. The point is simply this. When we look at these things, when we look at what God has made, he has left an imprint of himself on everything. And not in some vague way, but with these details about his character. Even when we look at things that are deformed or broken or decaying, even these tell us that God is perfect as well as telling us God's very unhappy with sinners. Let's turn a moment to Psalm chapter 19. There are certainly many other places in Scripture that teach these things. Obviously, Genesis 1 and 2. But here in Psalm 19, this may be the most uh, clear connection to what Paul is saying. 
And know what it says, the Psalm of David here. Of course, all Israel is going to sing it, right? The chief musician. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So, right, the heavens, right? What's in the sky? Right? <coughs> Excuse me, when you think of the, the clouds, when you think of the atmosphere, sun, moon, and the stars, right? These things are speaking. They are declaring. Notice the glory of God. Not just his existence, but that he is glorious. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. So every day, every night, it's telling us about God, who he is. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. No one has missed this message. So again, that person in a secluded tribe in the middle of Africa or whatever, they've heard this message. Everyone has. And then he continues, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Not surprisingly, David focuses on the most obvious thing in the heavens, and that's the sun. The sun tells us that God is powerful, that God brings life and warmth. He provides for us. But God also is angry and wrathful. Things dry up. Things die from the heat. And so again, these things are telling us It's not just the scientist or the specialist or the very smart that can understand these things. Nor is it just the primitive, the uneducated, and the superstitious that believe these things. Everyone knows the true and living God is the God of the Bible. Again, they may not know him by name, but they know him nonetheless. Therefore, as we come back to Romans 1, Paul ends verse 20 by saying, so that they are without excuse. No one can say, I didn't know. I missed that day in school. Nobody can say this. There are no excuses. And so to my sermon title then, are there atheists? Well, the clear answer from Scripture is, of course not. There are people who say they're atheists, but there are no atheists. And so the atheist who definitively says there is no God, they're suppressing the truth. Obvious truth. They're the most stupid people alive, you might say. It's just so clear. And they're denying it. You know, when we were on our trip up to Maine, I think it was in Massachusetts, um, Anna might remember, we got behind a car and their license plate said Atheos on it, which is the Greek word for atheist. So here's this person that is declaring to everyone, I am a proud atheist. There was another car that had all kinds of bumper stickers that basically said the same thing. But all they're telling you is, I am ignoring the obvious. But we can go the next step. What about deists? Remember, a deist is someone who says there is a God, but he's... 
so far out there that we have nothing to do with him. Maybe he started things up, but we can't relate to him and he doesn't care what we do here or whatever. Well, Paul says, absolutely not. Isn't it abundantly clear that God is involved with his creation? If his wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, obviously he is personal. When we look out here to this white oak tree that's going bad, that's telling us that God is personal. We know him. He pays attention. This is an indication, this decay of God's wrath against sin. So what about the agnostics? These are the people who say, well, I'm just not sure. Maybe there's a God, maybe not. Maybe it's the God of the Bible. Maybe it's the God of the Quran. I just don't really know for sure. Paul says, yeah, you do. You're just suppressing the truth. And so ultimately, there are no false religions, no false gods, no idols. All of these are examples of people suppressing the truth. And that's what Paul is going to say in verses 21 to 23. So as I bring these thoughts together here, let me emphasize a few things. First of all, God reveals his wrath against all of us because all of us suppress the truth. All of us would rather that we were in charge. We don't like God telling us what to do, especially when it comes to the issue of suffering. We automatically, it seems, when something bad happens, say, God, I have a better way. What are you doing? But God is revealing his wrath in some way. Maybe, for his people, it's an issue of discipline. And, of course, certainly that's true, as we see in Hebrews. But we also don't like a holy God because we enjoy our sin. Now, maybe we don't go down to the local brothel or something like that. uh, But we enjoy our sin, at least within us, as we ponder things and lust after things and covet things. We don't like an all-knowing God either because we like to hide our sin. We don't like an unchanging God because we can't change his laws. His power never wanes and he never forgets. We like to suppress these truths. And again, I haven't told you anything yet that needs the Bible to, to show you that that's true. These are things we see just from what God has made. Furthermore, none of us are indifferent to these truths. Suppression means an act of the will, right? It's not just that we say, I don't really care about God. No, we are actively saying, I do not like God. I'd rather be in charge. We are his enemies, as Paul says in Romans 5. This is a deliberate refusal to believe in him. Certainly this is true of the unbelievers outside of the church. Certainly this is true of atheists. But even every one of us here, our old man thinks this way. Another thought here is this. God has made himself known from the beginning. Everyone knows him. But all this knowledge leaves us guilty and condemned 
and without excuse. Okay. General revelation can only do that. When we look outside, when we look in the mirror, when we look under the microscope, all it can do is say, God exists, it can tell us things about God, it can say, God's angry with you because of your sin. It cannot tell us how to be made right with God. You cannot look under a microscope at some cells and learn, hey, this is how I'm saved. You can't go out and look through the telescope at the stars. You cannot go out into the woods and hug a tree and say, I'm worshiping God and he's happy with me now. It doesn't work that way. The only way we can know how to be made right with God is through the scriptures. General revelation tells us lots of things about God, but it doesn't tell us how to be made right with him. That is found in his word. And that, of course, is through Jesus Christ and him alone. And so finally, then, there are no atheists. There is no one anywhere that can say they don't know. And because we know, and because we suppress what we know, God's not happy. And he reveals his wrath. And this is just, this is fair, this is deserved. And so here then, briefly, is Paul's point. And so next time, we'll look at verses 21 and 23, where he describes how people suppress the truth. So let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for... Uh, your word that you have for us. We thank you, Lord, that you, in your word, make clear to us the things that we know by looking around us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have made yourself known in all kinds of ways. But we are thankful especially that you have given us your word that we may rightly understand and that we can see how we may suppress the truth. Lord, we praise you that you exist. We praise you for all the different attributes of, of your character. And um, um, we pray, Lord, that you would help us then to acknowledge these things and not suppress them. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us to love the things about you and not still um, fight against you as our old man desires to do. Lord, we again, are thankful that though you expose our sin, that you have not left us in our sin, but like Jonah, who ran away from the truth to suppress it, you pursued him and you showed grace to him. And uh, we are thankful that you've done that for us. And so we uh, thank you for these things and pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen.